Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 21st. I'm Andrew Walworth. With the midterm elections now less than three weeks away, the polls in many races are tightening up. But can you trust the polls and the pollsters behind them? We'll look at the challenge of polling in the current political environment and at a new Real Clear initiative aimed at holding pollsters accountable for both their good and not so good work. Also, Joe Biden headed to Pennsylvania on Thursday to tout his infrastructure bill and support Democrats running for office there. But this weekend, he won't be on the campaign trail. He'll be back at his beach house in Rehoboth, where the weather is supposed to be pretty good for a fall weekend by the shore. But is this any way to run a midterm election? And we'll examine the surprisingly competitive Senate race in Utah between Republican incumbent Mike Lee and independent challenger Evan McMullen. Some are calling it the wildcard race that could decide who controls the U.S. Senate, while others think Deep Red Utah remains safe for the GOP. Joining me to talk about all this are Tom Bevin, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief, and A.B. Stoddard, columnist and associate editor. So, Tom, pollsters got a lot of heat in 2016 and 2020 for overestimating how well Democrats would do on Election Day. And now Nate Cohn over at The New York Times says it may happen in 2022. He writes, uh, and I quote, the warning sign is flashing again. Democratic Senate candidates are outrunning expectations in the same places where the polls overestimated Mr. Biden in 2020 and Mrs. Clinton in 2016. So are we in for a repeat of those past errors? And tell us about what RCP is doing to address this situation. You're right. There's been a flurry of articles, not just Nate's, but others asking that same question. And ultimately, it's unknowable. I mean, we we don't know. We won't know whether the pollsters got it right or not until November 9th. There are two, two pieces to this. One is that we've gone back to try and answer this question, to try and give our readers and viewers and followers another piece of information by which to assess and evaluate each of these races. We went back and looked at in these individual states, how did the pollsters perform in 2016, 2018, 2020, and which side was underestimated? And we're tracking that day by day. So today, for example, 19 days from election, if you go and look, you will see that Uh, The polls underestimated Republican support in Pennsylvania by 5.1% over those last three cycles. Right now, you've got John Fetterman leading that race by 2.4%. Okay, so if the polls follow that same pattern, uh, you know, Oz would be ahead by two and a half points or so. Um, In a place like Nevada, though, for example, Adam Laxalt's leading that race by 1.2% in our real clear politics average. But Democrats have actually been underestimated there because the Harry Reid machine tends to turn out union workers in Clark County, Las Vegas area. So polls have underestimated Democratic support by eight tenths of a percent. So again, if that holds true, that race is basically an absolute coin flip. Hmm. So you just go down the list of all these competitive center races and it gives you just, again, a sense. We won't know whether the polls are following the same pattern, maybe they're going to be spot on this year. We will find that out eventually. So it's just another data point. Just another data point. But one of the things that we've done is we've introduced and rolled out this new polling accountability initiative in which we are going to go back and basically, and this will happen over the next couple of weeks, take a look at pollsters and give them sort of rankings based on their accuracy. I mean, we're going to measure them on the only metric that matters, which is how accurate were your polls in reflecting the final outcome of these elections? 
2016, 2018, 2020. And then obviously moving forward, we're going to do that with evaluating how this turns out in 2022. And the idea is a lot of these articles, including the one you mentioned, make this suggestion that, you know, is polling broken? That's a pretty broad statement. In fact, there have been some pollsters that have been pretty good over the last three cycles and other pollsters who haven't been so good. But for the pollsters who haven't been so good, there really hasn't been any accountability whatsoever. I mean, they continue to do the same thing and make the same mistakes. And and so this is really an effort to try and a constructive effort, we hope, in trying to bring some accountability to the the industry and focus on hopefully making the polls as accurate as they can be. That's in the best interest of pollsters. It's in the best interest of consumers. And we hope that this project helps contribute to that in some way. Well, Carl, I read a piece by um, Kathy Obradovic, her name is. She's a writer at the Iowa Capital Dispatch. She was defending a poll that showed Chuck Grassley with a three-point lead over Democrat Mike Franken, which seems to many to be an outlier. People think Grassley should be further ahead. But she says, election polls are not predictions. It's more accurate to say they are history. That's because they can only measure how people say they will vote on the day they are surveyed. Voters are asked if the election were held today, but the poll was not taken on election day. She's talking about this specific poll. It was taken October 9th through 12th, nearly four weeks before November 8th, and seven to 10 days before people can start voting early. So is it fair to look at polls and say, ah, these are supposed to be predictions, or are they just snapshots in history, uh, and history changes? Well, that's an interesting question. It's a bit of a cop-out for for pollsters. People pay big (laughs) money for the polls. They're trying to get information. But, you know, I used to say, Andy, when I first covered politics, that when a pollster talks to a voter, that conversation begins with a lie, and the lie is told by the pollster. If the election were held today, dot, dot, dot. Because the voter knows the election is not held today. So they can say anything they want and they can send messages to parties and they can do things. But when we're, we're looking at polling now in the last 10 days of October, voting's already going on. Three million people have already voted. Th- those voters you talk to, some of them may have voted already. So we've got early voting now and it's really taken root. The election is not election day. That's a misnomer. It's more like election month, or, you know. But some polls, as Tom was saying, some pollsters and some polls get it right and some don't. I mean, two years ago, the stark state that stood out was Wisconsin because the pollsters just didn't get it right. Our real clear politics average had 8.4% or something for Biden. There was a couple of pollsters who did okay there. The Marquette Law School poll, 48-43. This is a state, by the way, Biden won by less than 1%, closer to half a percent than 1%, The Morning Consult poll, 54-41. They had, they had, this, is the, this is the day before the election. So, so you, you want to call it a snapshot. This was the day before the election. They had it 13 points. Uh, the, the, there were other bad polls. Ipsos Reuters had it 10 points. The Washington Post ABC News poll, October 28th, this is a week before the election, has it 57-40 uh, Biden over Trump. That's 17 points. People in the Trump campaign, some of the Republicans thought they're trying to suppress the vote because that poll was so obviously bad. What explains it? So people said, well, what about the shy voter you know, shy Trump voter. This was a theory pollsters themselves didn't like very much. There's no evidence for it. But there was a state right next to Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the pollsters had it right. So what was going on there? It's not just the sample. There's something else going on. Nobody knew quite what it was. One, the theory that makes the most sense to me is what pollsters call a differential non-response. And Andy, that is one group of people is systematically less likely to talk to pollsters 
to respond to a pollster than others. In this case, it was a, a cadre of Trump voters in that state. Why right across the border in Minnesota, which similar demographics, you didn't have that? We don't know. But that's what we're looking at now in these midterms. Is there a state like that, especially in these Senate races in which the Trump voters just maybe have it in for the media and they're just, oh, I'm with ABC, I'm with you know, Philadelphia Inquirer, well, you know, they're not going to answer. And so you get this skewed response. It's what the Democrats are afraid of. It's what some of these liberal analysts are afraid of. And that's why you've seen this spate of stories. So, A.B., what are the practical uh, sort of implications of bad polling? Because big decisions are made, uh, big money is spent, but big decisions are made based on polls. And if people are getting bad information, they may be making bad decisions. In 2020, we were told by some handicappers that eight to 10 Senate races were in play. Democrats were in dead heats in some of them in the polling. So they fired up their donors and they took in hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think they outspent Republicans two to one. And they were contesting red states, Iowa, Montana, Kentucky, South Carolina, and Kansas. And it was so exciting. Jamie Harrison was going to beat Lindsey Graham and on and on. And the money came in from all around the country. And they lost badly. None of those elections were close. And all the polling was off. But as a result of those polls, they were off as much as six percentage points just two years ago. An incredible sum was raised and spent. And I believe they raised, they outraised the Senate Republicans two to one. And not one of those races was close. Uh, the, the polls were off by almost 6%. And they were all wipeout landslide victories for the Republicans. And so this should be a sobering lesson for them uh, that trying to think about Val Demings, you know, keeping it close in Florida or um, even North Carolina, I'm not buying that one. They just had this debacle and wasted, as I said, hundreds of millions of dollars in the last cycle they have to be very careful with their resources because, yes, decisions are made as a result of polls uh, and they're consequential decisions. And throwing money around on these fantasy races is a huge waste of time. And it it also taught us not only this the 2020 cycle taught me that polls don't matter because they're not votes, but, you know, dollars aren't votes. I understand that there are some places where you need money at the end and TV ads are important, but you see a lot of these candidates raising a lot of money. And and I, what I learned from 2020 is it, it doesn't always get you very far. Right. Well, Tom, one thing that comes to mind is I'm a big believer in markets. It seems to me that if a pollster were consistently wrong, that the market would punish him somehow, him or her. That doesn't seem to be the case. And so one of two things are happening. Either the market isn't working or we're looking at the wrong currency, that accuracy isn't always the point of these polls. And some of these polls, maybe they're not push polls, but they are not designed to get accurate results by that. Well, there are certainly players in the marketplace that uh, there's a group out this year called Center Street Pack, which is founded by Joe Walsh, who's sort of a you know never Trumper. And a great guitar player, but go ahead. Not that Joe Walsh, the other one, former congressman from Illinois, talk show host, now uh, never Trumper. And, and, you know, they put out these crazy polls. I mean, crazy polls like like Fetterman up 20, Tim Ryan up 11 in Ohio, you know, Mark Kelly up 15. And they seem clearly designed to not only manipulate averages, but also 
push narratives and they get attention. Unfortunately, you know, some people use them. We don't. They've endorsed Tim Ryan and Mark Kelly. They are a pack trying to influence the narrative uh, for Democrats. And so some of the worst offenders over the past few years have been the uh, universities and the institutions that, uh, that maybe don't have those same sort of market concerns that you mentioned, but you know, you've got to, you know, the Washington post, for example, I mean, the, the, the 17 point Wisconsin poll that they released, you know, in uh, right before the 2020 election, no consequences for that, none. And so I think that's part of what we're trying to do is inject some accountability for uh, these polling organizations in the hope that, uh, you know, it helps everybody sort of raise their game. Again, you know, the pollsters that they have their group, APOR, which is the Association of Political uh, Opinion Researchers or whatever, and they have their annual meeting and they get together and they got together in 2016 and tried to figure out, okay, what 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 happened? Why were the polls off? And, you know, one of the conclusions was that they didn't account for the shift in sort of education, right? Non-college educated white voters in particular, upper Midwest swung heavily to Trump and you had college educated uh, voters swing more heavily toward the Democrats. In 2020, they had their meeting and tried to figure out why they got it wrong again and sort of threw up their hands and there didn't really have any good answers, any conclusions. Again, there are pollsters out there that are getting it right, or at least more right than some of the others. But there doesn't seem to be any sort of effort to figure out exactly how those folks are getting in touch with the electorate and modeling things properly when others continue to model things improperly and inaccurately. And so that's part of the deal is trying to bring some accountability because right now there really isn't any. And right. I can tell you as someone who does this and interacts with the public and give, you know, goes around the country and gives speeches and and I'm sure A B and Carl can say the same thing. People just don't they're like, oh Polls are crap. All the polls. Everything's crap. They don't believe in it anymore. There's no trust in any of these institutions anymore in polling. And that's, you know, that's a problem. It's a problem that that I think needs to be fixed if it can. Well, we'll see what happens. But Carl, in the meantime, let's talk about uh, President Biden. Uh, he was in Pennsylvania yesterday in an event staged in front of the Fern Hollow Bridge, uh, which is the bridge that collapsed nine months ago. It's being rebuilt. But he's scheduled to head back to Rehoboth, as I said at the opening. Um, who can blame him? Rehoboth, beautiful this time of year. But uh, Carl, you know, is this just an extension of that 2020 strategy where he sort of ran his whole campaign out of the basement? Or is he just not that popular on the uh, campaign trail right now? Well, he claimed in Pennsylvania today that he's been invited to Nevada and Georgia. They've asked him to come there. So uh, we'll see. He's been in Nevada once as president. You've got a cliffhanger of a race out there for the Senate. Uh, and the only time he went was, I I could be wrong about this. I think it was the funeral of Harry Reid. He's just not, you know, he doesn't travel to the West Coast that much. But Pennsylvania, it's right next to Delaware. It's close to Washington. He's been there 18 times as president, nine times this year. There was some reporting out of there that he didn't do a rally. There was a bridge that collapsed. He stands there. He, he points out that his that that was going to be fixed anyway, but he's got this infrastructure money that he signed an infrastructure bill that he's governing. I actually think at this point in the in the campaign, that's the right way to appeal to independent voters or undecided voters. Does it gin up the base? Does it rally the base? Well, Biden's not going to be able to do that, but there, but Barack Obama is going out with some of these candidates. He's going to go to Nevada. So you'll have some star power out in the next three weeks. It just that's not really Joe Biden's forte. He's he's going to be 80 next month. And it's it shows. 
And so I don't think he wants to, you know, I don't think he wants to overdo it, and tax himself in a way that would put him at, at, at a disadvantage. I've got conservative friends who want me to make a big deal of how much time Biden spends in Delaware. Uh, and I remind them in a loving way that when Ronald Reagan spent, you know, one eighth of his presidency at Rancho del Cielo in California, they thought that was perfectly fine. And if they want to go back and retract all their statements defending Reagan, I'll be happy to write the story that they want me to write about Biden. They look at their shoes and walk away and say, it was nice seeing you again, Carl. So if the Democrats lose, it's not because Biden took some time off. A.B., what do you think? Well, Biden is not popular on the trail, so he's not useful in these um, knife-edge races among swing voters. He's not wanted. So what he does is he goes and does events for the few people you know, they want to have him. And then, you know, he does a lot of fundraising and he's doing, he's bringing some good hauls for, for, for them. And, and I think that's pretty obvious. And uh, Pete Buttigieg is popular in the campaign trail. Kamala Harris, no. Joe Biden, no. Uh, even Obama, I guess, is hesitating about where he should go because he doesn't want to create some kind of antidote effect where it makes people who hate him more energized to vote. It's not a secret. <laughs> it's not a mystery here that that Joe Biden, his uh, approval ratings are definitely bouncing back because some Democrats are coming home. And that's probably a result of a few things. But his approval ratings are not high enough. And it, traditionally, in midterms, presidential approval rating really does correlate to the number of, of, of House seats, a, a party who's president of the White House that controls the Congress ends up losing. And, you know, on the House side, they only have four seat margin or five seat margin. They're going to lose the House. And then the Senate is just, it's a really a jump ball. So I, I think Biden doesn't have an ego about this. I mean, he pretends like, oh, I'm so wanted. Everyone's inviting me. But, you know, he's cool to just do whatever, raise some money in, in secret. It is what it is. He's, his, his numbers are where they are, and that's not good for Democrats. Well, Tom is chomping at his microphone there. So I'll just let Tom respond. <laughs> Listen, you know, Biden was on the trail last week, went to Colorado, California, and Oregon. Um, he is in Pennsylvania, was in Pennsylvania today, but by and large, I mean, you look at his, his approval rating overall is 42.7 in a real clear politics average. The last two polls have him at 40 and 39 on specific issues like inflation. He's 10 points lower. He's 33, 34 and 35, 37 on crime, immigration, uh, his approval rating in these swing States in Georgia, it's like 39% and New Hampshire, it's like 40, 41. So you know, he's a drag on the ticket. I mean, there's just no question. Um, and Democrats don't have, as as A.B. mentioned, you know, Buttigieg is out there running around and Obama's been sort of hauled in. You know, he's going to go to Atlanta. He's going to go to Milwaukee. But the thing that really piqued my interest was that he's going to go to D Detroit. Why is he going to Detroit? Unless that race for Gretchen Whitmer is a little too close for comfort. The latest polls have it about five percentage points. And the upper Midwest is is like ground zero for poll error and and the shift among again non college uh, educated voters. You look at places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, all of which have Senate races and gubernatorial races. Um, even New York now, the race in New York has been shockingly close. It's down to four or five points in the most recent polls. Lee Zeldin, the Republican there thinks that he actually has a chance and, and he might. I mean, it's just the way things are trending right now with less than three weeks left, the Republicans have popped to a three three 3.3 percentage lead in our 
generic congressional ballot average, things are trending their way, and we'll see whether that continues. It could, it could, you know, they could, their momentum could stall. Uh, Democrats could could pick up some late momentum, but right now it looks like uh, you know Democrats are headed for a pretty bad night. Well, AB, I want to switch gears here, and I want to talk about Utah. Uh, it's a very red state. Went for Trump by 21 points in 2020. Senator Mike Lee, uh, who's the Republican there, is in a surprisingly tight race with independent candidate Evan McMullen. Um, there's no Democrat in the race this time. And Lee won his l- last election. I went back and looked. This was in 2016. He won by 41 points. You wrote about this this week. What happened and how much trouble is Mike Lee really in? Well, I think Mike Lee is going to win a third term, but Mike Lee has a real race, the first race in Utah in 50 years, and he asked for it. It shouldn't have been this way. He easily could have been senator for life, you know, gliding into another 40-point win. The Democratic Party doesn't exist in Utah, but Mike Lee's sucking up to Trump uh, is not popular in Utah. It's not a red state like Alabama or Wyoming. It's a different place because of uh, the Mormon church. And only 50% of voters in Utah identify as Republicans. So he knew that his Trump friendship um, and ultimately the texts that everyone saw in April between him and Mark Meadows about what he was doing to help or to be eagerly seen as helping overturn the election, uh, come up with alternate electors stall or delay or stop the count on January 6th, whatever, is is a real problem for him. If you look at the polls, he was an unpopular incumbent before that, but that's when he dropped off. So polls, they're often not reliable, but the polls that Utahns believe are reliable come from the Hinckley Institute um, and are are done by this guy, Dan Jones. and, And basically the last two polls that they did had the race at two points and four points. And so the base has to pull him across the finish line. And it's a, it's a base in a state that only ever has to focus on primaries and doesn't have to worry about November. So the risk to Mike Lee, because Evan McMullen is running as an independent and convinced the Democratic Party there not to field a candidate. He is putting together the Romney coalition, the independents, the Democrats, the Republicans who don't like Lee anymore. And Lee has to energize his base that doesn't usually think about November elections um, to win. Do I think he's going to win? Yes, I do. Is it going to be the margin, you know, he should have or could have won with? Not remotely. So Carl, Mitt Romney has not endorsed him. Lee, Lee went, actually went on Tucker Carlson, remarkable appearance, sort of asking for uh, Mitt Romney and his whole family to uh, to endorse him and work for him. Is this a sign of Trump fatigue out there? As AB says, I mean, is he just by embracing Trump has sort of dug his own uh, grave or near grave this time around? You know, I used to do some reporting in Utah and AB pointed this out, um, Andy, the LDS Church is is it's very conservative, but it's never been anti-immigrant, and quite the contrary. Founding that church is an immigrant story and a, and a, and a story of persecution, and maybe the press went overboard the way we covered the so-called Muslim ban, but that kind of stuff didn't play well in Utah among Mormon voters and Mormon leaders. Uh, and Mike Lee, Mike Lee knows this, but he 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 got he got caught up in the Trump phenomenon is. Unfavorable rating is 47%. His favorable rating is only 40%. If, if that state had a vibrant two-party system, he'd be in deep trouble. 
I, I, I think AB's right. I think he'll pull it out. But it's a reminder that all these states are different and, and one size does not fit all. But he got, he got too close to Trump. And I think people wondered why he was doing it. I think a lot of voters in Utah came to see Lee as an opportunist. And, and, that's, and that combines with the normal anti-incumbent feeling that I, that's out there. Uh, but, but AB's right. He brought this on himself. He, he didn't need to be this way. So, Tom, A, do you buy that? Do you think Lee's um, uh, in trouble? And B, you know, what if he, what if McMullen wins? He becomes an independent. We said he wouldn't caucus with the Democrats or Republicans, so he'd be kind of lonely. We could go visit him, Andy. <laughs> what if, he, if he doesn't caucus, he still has to vote for someone for Senate Majority Leader. I mean, he could be the deciding vote. I mean, possible? <laughs> Another Joe Manchin. Uh, more than Joe Manchin. Yeah. yeah. We have two of them. I, I have been in this business long enough to know that anything is possible, and you never say never. And anyone who tells you that they know with absolute certainty what's going to happen is is someone who should not be trusted. They're lying to you because they don't know. And in a year when Oregon might elect a Republican governor and Oklahoma might elect a Democratic governor, anything is possible. I Listen, d- is this race closer than it should be? Absolutely. I mean, the fact that Mike Lee doesn't have a 20 or 30 point lead tells you that something is is amiss with uh you know him and the voters in Utah. But is Evan McMullen going to beat him? I don't think so. Not not this year. Um I'd be shocked. I mean this would this would be a really shocking upset. Again, people are so tribal and I, Utah may be unique a little bit, but it it, it doesn't defy all conventions. Um, and, and I think Republicans are, are ready to turn out and vote. And so I just think, you know, Mike Lee's a heavy, heavy favorite there. Well, AB, what, what are the national implications of this? I mean, what does it mean that someone like Lee is in trouble? Do people look at that and say, okay, well, gee, you know, it's one more tea leaf that maybe, uh, Trump's time has come and gone. Uh, again, see, Utah is just unique in that, um, for the reasons that Carl noted, these tensions within the LDS community, I think there's a bunch of things that have strained Mike Lee's reputation with his voters. But he's not in trouble because a bunch of Democrats are going to turn out because they're mad about the Dobbs decision. That could affect Ron Johnson. But it's not going to affect uh, Mike Lee. I think Mike Lee's situation is unique because Utah's unique and because he ended up you know, as I mentioned before, really being a participant in the two month behind the scenes discussions. And he lied about it blatantly, repeatedly. I didn't know they were looking for alternate slates of electors. But of course, he was talking about that with Meadows in November, December. He he just people just kind of think he's a faker now. So it's a very interesting, different dynamic. And as Tom notes, we we're seeing these unique races everywhere that don't portend a blue or red wave. So if you're looking at Oklahoma and Oregon, you're looking at Tim Ryan's strength in Ohio and R plus eight state where DeWine, the incumbent governor, is way ahead. In in the same polls, Vance doesn't have any buffer. Is Vance going to win? Probably, but he's not going to win, you know, the way DeWine wins. So that we could end up Joe O'Day in Colorado, like the best candidate the Republicans have. He could end up beating Michael Bennett. While at the same time, we could have some other surprise somewhere else, like Ryan beating Vance. So I think this is an election where we have so many X factors 
and and Mike Lee's just sort of messed up in you know his own reputation in Utah. But in terms of the whole map, I'm not going to be surprised if things go in two different directions in different races in November because many of them are unique, and there are these factors, like I said, that um, the the mad at Trump factor. <laughs> It's not going to affect Ron Johnson. He's either going to turn out his base on crime or the Democrats are going to turn out their base on abortion in Wisconsin. That's it, right? The, Mike Lee is like unique, but this is a weird year where there's all these factors at play. And and I I think we end up with a purple wave. And in a, in a purple wave, things get confusing. Uh, but it could still be a red wave. I don't think it'll be a blue wave. But I think people are just looking at this election like we've always looked at midterms. And I think this year could deliver multiple surprises. Tom, last word. Well, I disagree with Abe a little bit. I mean, I think I think the closer we're getting to election, the more the fundamentals and history is taking hold. I think there was a moment in late summer where the Democrats thought that the Dobbs decision was a game changer. Certainly, that is, they put all their eggs in that basket. They went all in. If you look at any ad that's running across the country, if you look at any mailer that's going out, um, it is all about abortion. The problem is, obviously, that the number one issue overall, certainly for Republicans, but even for independents, is economy and inflation. Abortion is well down the list for them. It's high on the list for Democrats. The strategy is that will energize the base. You need an energized base, but you also can't win without winning over independents. And to independents right now, Democrats are looking out of touch because they're not focused on what independents say is the number one issue uh, for them. And so I think it is looking... Like a, like a red wave. It's as if the media just discovered that inflation and the economy are the number one issue. It's been the number one issue. I went back and looked at this. It's been the number one issue for months, even before the Dobbs decision and post Dobbs decision. It has always been the number one issue. And so you look at Joe Biden's job approval rating, you look at the generic congressional ballot, you look at $4 gas, you look at 8% inflation. Um, it is, and then you look at sort of history, and we're seeing it now in the polls. I think all these late deciders, it's a late-breaking election. People are moving toward Republicans. Their momentum may stall. They may peak you know, a couple weeks too early, and it'll drop off in the final week before election. But right now, it's a red wave. The question is just how big is it? I said Tom could have the last word, but we've got a purple wave. We've got a red <laughs> wave. Carl, I got I to gotta hear what kind of wave you're, you're going to be surfing. Carl's, uh, he's surfing the Padres wave. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm yellow and brown. I don't know what ugliest uniforms in baseball, but I really I'm pulling hard for that team. Uh, listen, there's a way Democrats pull it out. I'm not predicting that. I just don't want our listeners to think that we have a crystal ball. We absolutely know Tom. Tom's pretty good uh, about this, and he he sees these things. He pays very close attention to them. But there are more millennials and Gen Z voters now than baby boomers, and and the way the path for Democrats would be. If young voters are motivated in a way they're not usually, I'm talking about voters under 40 now, not just young, not just 18 year olds, the way they're not usually motivated in uh, midterms come out because they're worried about the Dobbs decision. They're worried about climate change. They, the, the Democrats message that the Republicans are an extreme party has taken hold and you have a surge of young voters. That's the only way you could get any kind of blue wave. But I wouldn't say it's impossible. Okay. Well, 
it's a purple wave, it's a red wave, it's a blue wave, who knows? Anyway, I want to thank you guys. A.B. Stoddard, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Check out the new uh, adjusted polling feature we talked about today. Let us know what you think about that. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.